Hello, and welcome to this third bonus episode of Food Systems. This is another departure from our regular interviews, as we are uploading the full audio of the latest FFA Live event, which took place on October 26, 2020. The theme of this conference was Rewarding Sustainability in the Food System. This is the third and last of three recordings, featuring the second panel discussion on Rewarding Agriculture's Potential Solutions for Biodiversity and Climate Change. I will now uh, introduce the second session. We are going to be talking about rewarding agriculture's potential solutions for biodiversity and climate change. And we will be talking to Tassos Haniotis, who is the Director of Strategy, Simplification and Policy Analysis at the Directorate General for Agriculture in the European Commission here in Brussels. We will also be talking to John Gilliland, who is the Director of Global Agriculture and Sustainability at Devonish. Marion Kroll will also join me here in the studio. She is the Senior Project Manager, Market and Food Change at ZLTO. And Ulrika Sapiro, Senior Director of Water Stewardship and Agriculture with the Coca-Cola Company, will also be joining us. Uh, let's have a look at how the voting is going in that last Mentimeter question before I say hello once again to all our guests. Uh, we haven't got many votes on that yet. Okay, I will leave it with you. We will come back to it. So I hope to hear the thoughts of the audience soon. With that, I'm going to hand over the floor to start things off to Marianne Kroll, Senior Project Manager, Market and Food Change, ZLTO. And I see all our other guests have joined us. So gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we will be coming to you in due course. But Marianne, first of all, your opening thoughts. And so, first of all, I want to thank the organization for inviting me to this session. Um, I feel honored and I enjoy sharing my experiences in farming practice with you. My name is Marion Kroll and I was born on a dairy farm in the Netherlands. And I've been working for about 20 years for the South Netherlands Agricultural and Horticulture Organization, which is an association of farmers with over 10,000 members in the south of the Netherlands. And it's my personal mission to make our food system more sustainable and to help farmers take steps in that direction. So as already emphasized by the previous speakers, the need for change is enormous and touches upon many different areas because in addition to food and affordable food prices, farming impacts biodiversity, landscape, water quality, water retention, CO2 emissions, rural livability, etc., etc. So many farmers are aware of these needs from society, but as long as they are paid only to produce affordable food, they often lack the resources to invest in this transition. So additional revenue models for sustainability are needed. And I want to give you two very practical examples of current initiatives I'm involved in addressing the issue of carbon farming and biodiversity. And both initiatives focus on revenue models to reward farmers for their regenerative activities. Well, the first example was already mentioned by Bas Rutte from Rabobank. So it's the implementation of the biodiversity monitor for dairy farming in my region. This is, as already explained by Bas Rutte, a national collaborative initiative started by the Dutch branch, branch of the World Wildlife Fund, Rabobank and Dairy Cooperative Friesland Campina. And uh, the aim of the program is to reward farmers for their contribution to biodiversity by annually completing a monitor 
with a set of key performance indicators, their contribution is quantified to improving biodiversity on their land. Well, in my region, different parties have agreed to use the biodiversity monitor as a basis to reward farmers, such as the three water boards in the region, the drinking water company, nature organizations, the provincial government, and also Friesland Campina and Rabobank. All these parties have an interest in sustainable soil management, improved water retention capacity and water quality, nature and biodiversity, and thus a more sustainable food system for the future. And what is very important, they are willing to give a reward for this. For example, in the form of compensation, a plus on the milk price, cheaper land rent or reduced interest rates. And this blending of rewards should make sustainability possible. And by using one system, it becomes easier for all parties. This year, we started a pilot group of 55 dairy farmers, which will be expanded to 200 next year. And in time, we want to involve at least 600 dairy farmers. And this is only in my region. In different parts of the Netherlands, there are uh, different similar initiatives. So the responses from the participating dairy farmers are very positive because they feel that various forms of remuneration are an acknowledgement of the fact that in addition to food, they also provide other services that require rewarding. Well, now I want to move to my second example, which is carbon farming. Well, an increase in organic matter content of soils has a positive effect on soil fertility, soil health, biodiversity, and water retention capacity. It makes our food production and our soils more resilient to climate extremes, and it can reverse climate change by storing carbon from the air in the soil. But here too, we lack a revenue model for these ecosystem services, which make it difficult for many farmers to invest in their soil. In the EU carbon farming project, we are working on developing revenue models for carbon sequestration. More and more parties want to offset their CO2 emissions. In the beginning of this year, we started a first pilot with a customer who is willing to buy this climate service from 15 farmers in our region. These 15 farmers will take extra measures on 650 hectares of land, with which they will capture nearly 3,000 tons of CO2 in the next five years, for which they will receive a reward of 100 euros each ton. This price is much higher than the international alternatives. But then our farmers can provide significant added value. They are local, they are close by, and they are super transparent. Customers can visit them and see for themselves how they contribute to carbon removal. And we actually receive many responses from farmers who also want to participate in this program. And as I mentioned, well, 15 farmers, it's a start. It's just very tiny, small, but we are currently in talks with various potential customers who are interested to offset their CO2 emissions. And we are developing a business case for national scale up. So to conclude my introduction, in my work with farmers, 
I see a lot of potential among farmers to contribute to biodiversity restoration and reversing climate change. And I also see some important needs. And I want to mention five. Well, the first one, rewarding, is an important incentive. We can help farmers by developing concrete services and connect them to interested customers. Secondly, knowledge is also an important incentive for farmers. Farmers want to learn how to manage their soils in a sustainable way and which measures are best in their specific situation. For instance, for carbon sequestration or increase of biodiversity. Well, a third one, a third need is certification. And this especially applies to the carbon farming initiative. It is important for those customers that we will actually deliver what we promise. To guarantee this, we need a certification system for carbon sequestration in agricultural soils. Uh, the fourth one, monitoring. At the moment, carbon sequestration can only be measured after several years. Farmers and customers want to be able to monitor the effects of their measures more closely. For this, we need a very practical way for monitoring at low cost. And last but not least, we should not forget about the market and fair food prices as incentives to increase sustainable food production. Consumers have to be informed about the true costs of food, but this is not easy as already mentioned by before. So this is my introduction. Thank you very much for your attention and I'm ready to answer any questions you may have. We are pleased to welcome from DG Agri in the European Commission, Tassos Haniotis, uh, the Director of Strategy, Simplification and Policy Analysis. Tassos, give us your opening thoughts, please, and comments. Uh, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, thanks uh, to the organizer for giving me the opportunity to comment, uh, uh, let me start and trying to, I hadn't really prepared uh, on purpose uh, something concrete, except for broad areas that I was going to mention, because I wanted to hear also uh, the comments of those that spoke uh, before me, especially because of the situation we're facing. Uh, I think uh, it was already mentioned by Eduardo, that the first thing that we have to do is uh, to uh, come to terms with the reality of the ongoing uh, uh, cap reform because it's exactly this reality that will show what are the possibilities of introducing some schemes and what are the limitations. I mean, uh, somebody that has worked uh, intensively in preparing uh, the future cap reform, I wouldn't uh, say exactly that everything is thrilling of what is happening, but at the same time, I wouldn't uh, like to underestimate the important uh, elements that still remain that would allow us to make a better link of the future cap to or the farm to fork strategy. And it's exactly in this particular area where I think we need to start uh, focusing uh, concretely and start moving from uh, more theoretical concepts uh, about sustainability to more practical ones. Uh, and for me, there is nothing more practical than realizing but the starting point of all the discussion about where we're going to go into the future is take out some detailed satellite maps and ask ourselves the question, what do they tell us about the specific condition on soil and the nutrient balance in every single, not member state, but regions of member states more concretely. And I mentioned soil because many of the best practices that we have seen on the ground uh, 
are practices where if you do good things in the soil, you end up doing very good things for air, for biodiversity and for water at the same time. Uh, I, um, the example that was mentioned before by Marion about uh, what is happening in the Netherlands is one that uh, was, uh, I mean, we had an invitation on a group that came and spoke to the Geagri about it. And it's a very interesting one because it uh, relates to sustainability in the livestock sector. In our agricultural outlook conference, three years in a row, we brought three very concrete examples. We started with agroecology with a all with young farmers, one on agroecology in the arable uh, sector, maize and cereals, one on rice production with precision farming, and last year, one on organic uh, farming, mainly in uh, trees and uh, fruits. Uh, and in all three of them, what we see is that there are concrete ways of improving the economic efficiency and the environmental efficiency of the farms. So the, the natural question is, why don't we generalize this? What is missing in terms of uh, having people realize what are the opportunities out there? And what is missing is pretty much linked to what has been also alluded by uh, the introduction of Janus about the right price signals. Now, let's be clear, if we are in an urgent uh, situation, and we are in an urgent situation, in the midst of the most major economic uh, crisis uh, that uh, we would have faced for quite some time, the manner by which we try to address the right price of food has to be dealt with the sensitivity of what this implies to part of the population that would not be able to afford a more expensive food. And this is where I believe that what we have done is underestimated some very important elements in the farm to fork strategy that aim to turn this strategy into a growth strategy. Because how are we going to be able to address better food sustainability without necessarily making food uh, too expensive? And we can do two very different things. First of all, we have to work uh, on the demand side and the consumer tastes and preferences by educating much better consumers about the manner by which their products are uh, produced and how they best meet uh, demand. I mean, it's clear that when we talk about tastes and preferences, we uh, talk about slow changes, but it's also clear that we talk about longer term longer term trends that are irreversible. And these trends clearly focus uh, a shift of consumer behavior towards uh, products that are associated with practices that are more mild uh, and have a much lower environmental footprint. Uh, the second thing that is probably more important to work on is on the production side and the supply uh, of producers, because this is where the big fear uh, comes of uh, producers um, about what to do. I mean, the, the example that was uh, mentioned before by Eduardo about the, the gap in the cost uh, of almost a thousand uh, euros per hectare, which is for potatoes, that's in generalized, is one that scares uh, uh, people if we only focus on this additional cost. But with productivity growth, with the use of new technologies, what we can manage to do is gradually uh, reduce uh, the cost of production. And uh, you can 
also play a major role with that with a, a better regulation in certain particular areas, especially if we manage to protect many of the uh, conditionality elements that we have put in our proposal, which still is going to go through a trilogue and uh, further negotiations. I mentioned this importantly because part of the debate we have about increased cost of productions, we also had it in the uh, crisis, the food safety crisis of the early 2000s, where uh, a series of measures that we took were considered to be increasing uh, the cost of production. They did it in the short term, but in the longer term, what we have seen is both an adjustment of the producers and an adjustment of uh, consumers to this new situation, which uh, ended up in uh, not making uh, food uh, more expensive in uh, the longer term. And here is the last point, what is uh, still very important in terms of uh, uh, how we pass this information to a larger part of, uh, of producers. It is extremely important to put in place farm advisory systems that function in all member states. I heard before uh, the example of Ben about New Zealand. I heard it also in a visit in New Zealand back in 2004. And then is when I realized two things that happen in New Zealand that can never happen in Europe. The first one is the overnight devaluation of the New Zealand dollar by a very significant amount that make automatically New Zealand uh, products more uh, competitive. The second is the uh, subsidization of, of banks for the loss in the asset values because of uh, the drop in, uh, in land prices. None of this can happen in Europe. I think the lesson we can get uh, from New Zealand is a twofold. First, you do different things if you're a small country than what you do is you're a union of many countries. And second, and that's the extremely positive thing about New Zealand is the innovative aspects in its agri-food sector. And it is around innovation that we have to make uh, uh, our focus. And it's passing the, the, uh, the concrete uh, examples, positive examples that innovative practices uh, give us to other farmers where we can actually uh, really have an impact because the real uh, fear that farmers have is they don't know, they know what are, we are asking them to do, but they don't know how exactly to do it. And here is where the very significant differences that exist in the various member states in the European Union have to be taken very well uh, into account. And a final point on something that also that was mentioned earlier by Janus, public money, and there is a lot of public money that is still available for uh, the common agricultural policy, should not, at least in a, still a significant period, go only from the provision of public goods, but also conditionally to the provision of private goods. Why? Exactly because what we have is the failure of markets to compensate uh, food for its real cost. We should use the leverage that we have around all of the area and all of the farmers to increase the overall level of ambition. And if we manage to do that, then the additional costs that organic farming, agroecology and other best practices have will be uh, smaller than what you do when you have only shifting money to one part of the production uh, and forget about what is happening in the nest, in the rest. This is for uh, the introductory part, and I'm pretty sure there are going to be plenty of questions around it later on. Thank you. 
Thank you. I'm sure there will be many, many questions. <laughs> there usually are. Um, we'll turn now for his opening comments to John Gilliland, uh, who is the Director of Global Agriculture and Sustainability at Devonish. John, the floor is yours. Uh, Devonish is a livestock nutrition and innovation company. We have customers in 35 countries. And we made a big decision back in 2013 to really put our money where our mouth is. So we went out and we bought a farm. And we bought a farm in County Meath in Ireland, a pasture, grass-based farm, to actually see what are the solutions and how could we measure and manage them transparently. And so on the farm that we bought, um, it's in County Meath, as I said, we uh, delivery set out our goal to see could we deliver carbon neutral beef and lamb production by 2025 while still driving profitability within those livestock farms. Having bought the farm, we, we sat about uh, going to town and delivering this strategy. We looked at de uh, delivering a soil improvement program, not only on fertility, but on soil health. We looked about measuring our carbon sequestration above and below ground. We looked at then our roots of overland flow of nutrient and soil into our water courses. We baselined our biodiversity. And in our case, we had a particular difficulty because we also host one of the last lowland wild herds of red deer uh, who are a uh, rather large population challenging our carbon sequestration in trees. And if that wasn't enough, we chose a World Heritage Site to do it on. So we've got 13 monuments we need to look after. And we've been on this road now for seven years. And <clears throat> as part of the, our award for the route we've gone, we've also been asked to join the global network of lighthouse farms, farms that go beyond best practice and look to bring their fellow peers with it. And on this journey for us, if we are serious about rewarding agriculture's potential solutions, for us, we need to bring transparency. So we set about uh, creating robust baselines of our key metrics using GPS, using digital technologies, starting 2014, where we did precision soil sampling analysis. And we found that when we bought the farm, we inherited 40 years of neglect of the previous far farmer. And um, we found that our pH, our phosphate, our potash were all where they shouldn't have been. Uh, we also then, uh, we decided rather than do satellites, we brought in an aerial survey using LIDAR, and we did precision measurement of every tree and hedge in the farm. And we found out what, how much carbon we have above the ground, uh, both in our hedges and our trees. In 2017, we took it further. We actually did a baseline of our soil carbon down to 30 centimeters right across the farm, 88 soil pits. And what astonished us when we went looking again, just like when we went looking for our pH and P or our difficulties there, we found under this grassland farm that had not been plowed for 40 years, that our soil carbon was about a, a, a half of what it should have been, and certainly that our neighbor's farms were, and really highlighted that soils under grassland also have problems. It's not just an issue. And this allowed us then to build up what were our carbon stocks accurately on our farm, in our soils, in our trees and hedges. And so if you're driving a strategy and trying to find solutions on how you accelerate your road to, to net zero by 2025, one of the key things we've done is we've actually sensitized our farm data against our livestock stocking density. Because at the moment, we, we average two livestock units per hectare under the nitrates directive. 
And currently we are displacing 56% of all the greenhouse gas emissions on our farm because of what we're doing in our soils, because of what we're doing in our hedges and trees. But we could reduce our stocking density down to 1.25 livestock units. And at that stage, we would actually be carbon neutral today. But that doesn't really help uh, in, in feeding a world that still uh, needs livestock products as part of a, a, a balanced diet as such. So we've been looking at the solutions around that and going back to what Tassos was saying, we went back to look at our soils. And over the last seven years, we have completely transformed our soil pH. Uh, our average soil pH for a brown mineral soil in 2014 was 5.5. Today, it's 6.6. .6. And we've seen, again, as Tassos has flagged up, a great improvement in productivity. We have doubled the amount of uh, forage utilised per hectare per year on that journey of six years of creating, correcting our fertility deficiencies. We've also then looked at bringing in further diversity into the farm. And in Ireland and in many other places, a lot of our farms are monoculture of ryegrass. So we look for credible research partners in Wageningen University Research and UCD, and we secured funding under the Marie Curie uh, award scheme with five PhD students looking at the benefits of introducing legumes and, uh, and herbs in multi-species swords and taking it through not only looking at the improvement of, of soil carbon sequestration but actually the micronutrient content in the meat as such and um, building uh, our track record transparently around that. And the third thing we've been doing is introducing silver pasture, putting trees and animals together in the same spot. And we're greatly helped by Jim McAdam, uh, formerly of, the, of AFBI in Northern Ireland and Queen's University, Belfast, where they have 30 years of uh, knowledge of animals and trees coexisting, where they've seen carbon sequestration treble, they've seen no reduction in livestock performance, and What's more, they've been able to extend the soil trafficability window in a year, which is a big issue for us in Ireland. It always rains in Ireland. And we've been able to extend our soil trafficability by 17 weeks a year. So really been focusing on solutions. And uh, we've always had at a macro level our eye against then how we as a company perform against the sustainable development goals. And can we actually stand over that? along with our work in Africa, in Kenya and Uganda at the moment, and our work in improving human health through our algae enrichment of chicken and eggs, we're now delivering on 11 of the 17 SD goals, which we're delighted. So for us, if we're serious about rewarding agriculture's potential solutions for biodiversity and climate change, to do that, we actually need to bring transparency and credibility about the solutions we're going to, 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 to deliver. And around that, for us, we have used technology to create these robust baselines right across our natural capital and our biodiversity. This has allowed us to empower not only ourselves, but our customers, farmers as well, about the right decisions on how they manage their land. And so by empowering them and then reporting and verifying this change, we believe we can bring value to the change. Uh, someone mentioned earlier on about carbon prices. Many of the carbon prices out there are heavily discounted today and are heavily discounted because people are not just totally certain they are getting what they say they're getting. So for us, we want to have total transparency so that we can be independently monitored, reported and verified 
of our positive journey to add value and to be able to take our customers, uh, our farming customers with us on this journey. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. I'm sure we're going to hear a bit more about the concrete examples and the practical experience you have in this discussion. I'm going to turn now to Ulrika Sapiro, who is Senior Director of Water Stewardship and Agriculture from the Coca-Cola Company. Ulrika, very welcome for us in person. Uh, let's have your opening thoughts. Thank you very much, Jennifer, and thanks to everybody for having me today. Um, I find the discussion that I've been witnessing very fascinating, but I feel now really compelled to put a bit of a framing around my comments because the practical examples that we've just heard uh, from, from people really um, practicing farming is really a, a long cry from where we as a company stand at the other end of uh, the value chain, really, that has been discussed about. But I think, uh, nevertheless, uh, perhaps an interesting perspective from that other direction. I think one, two things I think I should say before I, I even get started. Um, the first one is the Coca-Cola company and our system generally, we don't buy agricultural raw materials from farmers. We buy food ingredients. So we are touching uh, thousands uh, of suppliers that are processing, refining, producing food ingredients from farmers, but we don't buy directly. Secondly, our supply chain of agriculture ingredients is vast. Um, we spend actually more money on um, procuring uh, our ingredients than on marketing, which is, which is quite a benchmark to meet. Uh, and, but that means that the potential influence that we can have on the supply chain is, is rather huge. It's very global. Uh, it touches a number of supply chains from very developing, very smallholder farming communities to very vast industrial conglomerates, of course. Uh, but that's really the landscape that we're operating in. But we really don't directly engage with farmers. And I think that's important to understand that what I'm going to say and how I'm going to talk about what we do is very much driving towards an interest of, of systemic change. And really, what you've had in the, in the questions earlier, the both or everybody type of answers. We totally are on, on that line. And that is because where we stand in that value chain. And I have basically three angles that I'd like to touch on. Uh, in, in terms of exploring a bit the drivers that I see for taking uh, an influence and engaging in sustainable agriculture along the value chain for, for a company like ours. And the first one for a consumer brands company obviously is around the market. And that is predominantly around the consumers and we've heard quite a lot of that. And as a brand company, listening and tracking consumer sentiment and understanding where consumers are going is obviously key to our business. But if you ask me, have we heard consumers so far say, yes, we want to pay more for biodiversity or we want to pay more for sustainable foods? No, of course not. And actually, the trend we will see uh, in the next few months and, and probably years, unfortunately, with um, the, the very difficult economic situation is going more into affordability. I actually haven't even seen consumer um, consensus about what sustainable food is. I see a number of different concepts floating around and consumers changing um, really their, their particular uh, view on what sustainability is in food. But what we see is that consumers are putting increasing emphasis on the need for the brands and the products they buy to gain their trust. And trust is very much value-based um, and is increasingly so. So sustainability, what we see in the consumer perception surveys, is sustainability of different kinds. And there are a very broad range of issues that, that consumers bring up, do drive their values and then drives consumer trust. So to, for consumers to make a certain choice for products is driven through trust and sustainability plays a role. So it's indirect, but it is there. And that uh, translates itself in, in, in the Coke system into that we have some brands and products that emphasize 
sustainable agriculture or sourcing as part of their brand proposition to consumers. So for example, in Europe, we have Fuse Tea that has a Rainforest Alliance seal for consumers to be clear about the origin and the sustainability of the tea uh, and other ingredients it uses. Costa Coffee and Innocent Drinks are part of the Coca-Cola family and they're very consumer facing in how they source and how they engage on sustainability. But I think it is even more important for companies like ours and for, for generally for manufacturers that we embed sustainable supply chains in the way we do business. And so I'm really proud that uh, ethical and sustainable sourcing is part of our company purpose, that is part um, and really parcel of a sustainable agriculture strategy and, and a continuous improvement program that we have globally with our suppliers, and that we have embedded sustainability into our other sustainability strategies, so agriculture into other sustainability strategies, particularly climate policy, the water security strategy and human rights policy. So really embedding it across a number of issues in the business. The second element I wanted to raise is about the frameworks, i.e. the policies in which we operate and our suppliers and their farm base um, is operating. Um, because we see, and I see this really in the engagement with our procurement team and, and suppliers, that policies and regulations can really either create barriers or actually act like a jet stream to sustainable practices. And, a large part of the work we have today in the discussions we have is to, is to find ways to offset or overcome regulatory barriers uh, and hurdles to drive to more sustainable practices, sometimes nevertheless or in spite of regulation. So I haven't met one farmer yet that said to me that you know, they don't want to reduce their overall um, input costs or don't want to have long-term productivity or don't care about the landscape they live in um, or don't like to have healthy soil in the long run. But we find very often that the economic realities between managing the risks, the costs, and the income streams and revenue streams uh, for sustainability has come up really doesn't leave them much of a choice right now than to stick with the safe choice. And the safe choice in Europe is very often defined through the CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy. So I think we need to really end the discussion here today is about unpacking that and meaning where are the barriers and where can we create that jet stream towards more sustainable practices. And that particular means, can we look at, and we need to look at the value of the natural resources, in particular water is very often an issue. Water costs are very low. On the other side, technology costs are very high. So those two elements, in particular to support innovation, um, are, are really critical. And so the Green Deal or the Farm to Fork strategy, they really can create this watershed moment if they're well thought out and effectively enable farmer farmers to take the risk of transition and, and actually do things differently and not have to bear the brunt of, of potential uh, issues that are arising on the way. And I would be amiss if I wouldn't mention the third point that actually hasn't come up so much uh, in, in the conversation today, which is about climate change or the climate crisis rather and the resilience we have to drive behind that. The World Economic Forum, just to put the numbers behind it, has estimated that 44 trillion US dollars in economic value depend on nature. And that especially impacts sectors like construction, agriculture, and food and beverage. So these are the sectors that are most dependent on nature as uh, a generator of economic value. And on the other side, we have WWF telling us that about 68% of species have declined since 1970. So it's a state of the temperature check, so to speak. But even more so, many people overread this, that 84% of species in the freshwater ecosystems have declined. And freshwater, 
watersheds are absolutely critical to agriculture. So what that tells, I think, us and should tell us that we really need to think about system change and about resilience. Um, and that means we need to look beyond particular farms and particular supply chains towards really landscape solutions. A couple of examples. We work uh, with partners and farmers in dozens of programs worldwide in water-stressed areas, including in Europe, in the UK, and in Spain, and Italy, and others, on driving water-efficient and more water-sustainable farming. That also includes managing runoff. That also includes increasing the soil health to keep uh, water um, in, in the soil, in the soil and, and improving uh, the structure there. But we're also working very importantly through collaboration with others, with other buyers, with other industries, um, to create sort of jo joint and, and aligned expectations to farmers of what sustainable practices are and what tools uh, and measurements and data they can actually use. So I mentioned the uh, Sustainable Agriculture Initiative platform, or Bon Sucro, or the Consumer Goods Forum are platforms that bring together different, different buyers and manufacturers to generate a bit of a, a, a different kind of um, market shift uh, in the supply chain. And finally, and I think I've, I've said that a few times here, we are an advocate for policy change because that ultimately is uh, the, the, the ultimate driver for the frameworks in which we operate. So particularly in the EU, the Water Framework Directive has to be part of this conversation. The climate pol policy has to be part of the conversation. Um, and, and more globally, we have joined the action, uh, the call to action for nature, which is, is calling for more biodiversity-friendly policies. So we're, we're in those, those three elements of consumer values and trust of uh, collaboration and systemic change and really the right agricultural policies that we are part of, of driving. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we've heard our opening thoughts there from all four speakers on this panel. I think it will come as no surprise. We also heard the opening thoughts from the audience on our latest Mentimeter question, which was, should farmers diversify from being just food producers, but also farmers for biodiversity? Probably no surprise at all that the answer was overwhelmingly yes, they should. So we are going to talk about, um, as you mentioned, as many of our speakers have already mentioned, the various policy instruments. So I'm going to dive straight in with a question from the audience, uh, from Donald Murphy Bokern to Tassos. Um, obviously, the farm to fork and cap are going to come up a lot here, but the question here is, he says, are we not overestimating the ability of markets to address environmental performance? We are talking about public goods for which markets fail profoundly, he says, and does not the primary responsibility for raising the bar for everyone not rest with policymakers? So it's a tough question to start you off on, Tassos, but give me your response and we'll, we'll get into the, the nitty gritty uh, of farm to fork and cap reform. Yeah, thanks. But uh, I mean, uh, tough questions is what uh, we're supposed to answer. And in, in a sense, it gives me also the opportunity to uh, answer to a comment made uh, by Janus. Uh, first of all, uh, it's not the private interest I mentioned, but the, uh, the private goods. That is what all farmers produce and the conditions under which uh, they produce it. Uh, markets uh, fail in uh, agricultural fail uh, for many reasons so to accurately reflect not only uh, the environmental costs, but also the full transmission of price uh, changes from producer to the final consumer. What we also know is that we have a fixed amount of money to spend it and we better spend it in the best possible way. So what we have tried to do with the policy proposal we made is to make sure 
first of all, that the overall level of ambition for everybody increases so that we don't have a part of our farming sector that receives money, even more money than today to do the right thing. And the rest, by being out of the policy, does whatever they like. Obviously, respecting uh, the law, but that's not enough. It doesn't increase the overall level of ambition, because uh, coming to a point made before, yes, uh, we we fail to mention climate change because I think we take it for granted in Europe that climate change is the driver of the farm to fork, the Green Deal, and even even before that, uh, in eighteen, when we started discussing uh, the future cap of the future common agricultural policy. So that's what we uh, we want to do. The important thing now is what we compensate uh, for. And there has to be a mix of uh, measures and of interventions that should apply uh, in different ways in different member states. And one of my concerns in this debate that is taking place now in the council and in the parliament is that by focusing the discussion on ring fencing and how much and what percentage of the budget would go here or there, which maybe it's necessary to end up in a compromise, we have put in the second or the third place the priority of looking on the ground at what are the exact challenges that we face in every member state, in every part of the member state. And here is where I believe that the strategic plans of the member states, and before that, the recommendations we're going to make to the member states and the dialogue with them would allow us to make this uh, discussion more concrete and more diversified and differentiated. Not everybody has a problem with soil erosion. Not everybody has a problem with surplus nutrient. Uh, not everybody has the same type of challenge in terms of emissions. But everybody in very different ways should use the best available practices to increase the overall uh, level of ambition. And maybe the initial process would be gradual, but what is extremely important is first to make this process irreversible and second to use the, the knowledge that we get from these best practices and the transfer of this knowledge to make this process accelerating as, as soon as possible. Thank you, um, John, as well. Questions, the, the EU cap and farm to fork strategy, amongst other mechanisms, have to do an awful lot. They have to do several things. They need to address economic sustainability, rural regeneration, build environment and climate resilience, and ensure the transition to healthy diets. Do you think, is it possible to do all of these things at once? Or is there one area that comes out on top or should get more focus? What's your thought? In, 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 it's a very complicated balancing act. It is a complicating balancing act, um, but I think it has to be done, and it has to be done simultaneously. Because if you go and you deliver economics, you knock out environmental sustainability. If you, you know, if you push and you don't deliver healthy food, you drive then uh, real nutritional problems in society as such. I don't believe it is too much that you can't do everything together. Certainly on the journey that we have been experiencing over the last seven years in the lands of Douth, uh, we have been able to deliver improved uh, efficiency and profitability in the farm. We've been able to deliver more nutritious food and we've been able to drive down our greenhouse gas emissions, accelerate our route to carbon zero, improve water quality and drive biodiversity. And we've been able to do that in a measurable way. So I don't believe it's too much. And I do actually believe 
you, there is a balance in the middle there. The one thing I will say on any journey is still make your journey transparent because when you make it transparent, the quality of your subsequent decisions is so much easier, it's so much better because you're making them from a more informed position. And so we have this discipline of measuring and managing, measuring and managing, measuring and managing. And by doing that, we're fine tuning the whole time and we're delivering on the multiple goods. Uh, Marian, I see you nodding along there with John agreeing with his transparency comments. But is it realistic for a policy instrument to deliver on all those very different areas all at once? And if so, how? Well, <laughs> I agree with John with that uh, transparency and uh, having the information on uh, the parameters that show uh, that show your results that is very uh, important and if policy uh, can help in this because um, in my um, introduction I also explained that uh, the monitoring and also the certification issues those are very important because we have to uh, explain to customers and we have to to guarantee that what we promise that we will actually deliver this so um, I hope in some way that policy can help uh, uh, in those questions thank you um, now we have a question come in from Xinyi Lim directly to you Ulrike um, and it's a question how much is Coca-Cola investing in sustainable agriculture and how does it arrive at that number vis-a-vis -vis the expected benefits? That is a very good question but it's not easy to answer we do not track how much we specifically invest in sustainability um, because as I said earlier we're embedding sustainability in the way we do business um, and so it is part of our conversations with the suppliers and of the specifications and the contracting with the suppliers to request and require sustainable farming assurances for agricultural ingredient supply. So for example, we have made uh, 13, uh, in 2013 a commitment and a goal to sustainably source um, 13 top global commodities sustainably. And we're on the process of, on the progress of uh, uh, advancing towards that goal with our suppliers. And one, one very important piece of, of investment together with our suppliers was to establish what does this mean, sustainable sourcing? So we set out sustainable agriculture guiding principles, a set of expectations and definitions which are transparently available on our website. And then work with our suppliers, how can they show with their supplying farms that practices that adhere and align to those sustainable agriculture guiding principles are actually being used on farm. And that, of course, is an investment that uh, partly has been carried by the company by engaging with the suppliers, but more, more importantly, by the suppliers to actually engage with the farmers. It's been a process over years to bring our global volume of those, those global commodities from 8% uh, alignment with sustainable farming practices to 54%. So obviously there's still uh, a lot to be done, but it is a huge progress over a relatively short period of time. The second area of investment is, is that we're really assessing the risks that are still um, residing in the supply chain, particularly when it comes to water scarcity uh, and water sustainability, but also human rights issues. Uh, so for example, we have invested in 
um, conducting uh, in-depth sugar industry studies in 27 countries on the sugarcane sector to understand where human rights violations and why they actually occur and work with others to remediate those issues, in particular the root causes of some of those, uh, those challenges. And thirdly, we're investing in continuous improvement. So I mentioned earlier we have, uh, I would say, on estimating about 50 to 70 programs and projects worldwide in different supply chains, from fruit juices, uh, commodities, to sugar, uh, to tea, coffee, and others, um, that actually work with farmers, particularly on uh, human rights and social uh, standards, but also particularly on water and climate. So direct investment in projects, risk assessment and management, and then assurance and compliance are the three areas where we invest. Thank you. I want to come back to John now. It's a very different area from that which Ulrike is discussing, but is there a positive role for livestock when it comes to promoting biodiversity and reducing emissions? Give me the, that perspective, please. Uh, yes, there is. And people forget that, particularly ruminant livestock, um, the microbiome in the gut of a, of a cow is nearly identical to the microbiome in a healthy soil. And one of the reasons that happens is that animals actually defecate in the soil. The bugs then drive the soil biologies. So actually taking ruminant animals out of a landscape, um, you actually, your soil deteriorates, your soil health deteriorates quite considerably. So for us, it's about finding that balance. And uh, where we have had a problem uh, in, in ruminant agriculture is where we have allowed our, 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 our house systems where feces and urine come together, get ammonia emissions. And when they go on the land, ammonia is toxic to biology. So we have to look at smart solutions or how we don't negatively impact it, but actually how we use the benefit. It's very interesting on the farm that we are on, it had no animals on it for 30 odd years. And we have introduced uh, a lowland suckler cow and calf system on the farm but in a core center bit and the outer bits we still harvest for winter fodder. And it's really fascinating to see how our soil potash and our soil biology has dramatically improved where we have had ruminant animals actually grazing the pastures on top of those soils. So it, it is a myth that if you, if you get rid of ruminant agriculture, you sort out all the problems. You don't. And what we have seen in our soils, the reason our soil carbon was so low is the previous owner neglected. He didn't have livestock on it. He didn't put any lime on it. The fertility collapsed, the soil biology collapsed, and our carbon was respired and not sequestered. Soils need to be healthy. They need to be inoculated. You need to look after them. And ruminants have a key role to play on that. They should not be made a pariah when they are used in harmony and sympathy with the natural environment that they sit within. Thank you. Now, I'm going to go to another question uh, coming in from Globe Capital International, uh, directly to Marion. And the question is, what is the best way forward towards reducing the use of insecticide and herbicide in the farming process? Another specific question for you. Well, can you say the question again? The question, Sorry. <laughs> what is the way forward towards reducing the use of insecticide and herbicide in the farming process? Well, to be honest, I'm not a specialist in this issue of herbicides and pesticides. So, um, yeah. 
Okay, well, we will we'll move on then to a more general question for the whole panel. But Tassos, I will start with you. It's the question of a carbon tax. And it is, would the introduction of a carbon tax help provide the incentive for the development of carbon trading markets that will provide another income for farmers? Uh, well, this is exactly the question that uh, we'll uh, ask ourselves when we do the specific uh, impact assessment about the introduction of a carbon tax. This is one of uh, several options in terms of uh, potentially compensating farmers. There are other type of options and we have to analyze it. But when you talk about uh, a tax and especially a carbon tax, what you have to take into account is a series of factors into consideration. And in the current uh, moving uh, environment, uh, both in the economy and worldwide, so uh, I mean, it would be premature to uh, to suggest uh, what the final answer is going to be. Uh, I think what is very important in this uh, uh, discussion is to keep uh, in our mind uh, the fact that what we have to do is address all the issues related to, to climate change at the global level and not just the uh, EU level. And that is where the, the leadership of the European Union uh, in terms of convincing people about what best practices are and what is uh, the direction to take could uh, help uh, potentially of even uh, arriving at a situation where this would not be necessary. But there is a very clear uh, pressure and clear questions that we're getting from all our stakeholders that we keep uh, having setting ambitious targets, which we impose on our society, while others are not uh, following uh, suit. So that's exactly what we have to analyze. Uh, Ulrike, let me ask you the, the same question. I mean, would the introduction of a carbon tax help? Uh, you know, as you've heard Tassel say, he's not going to preempt any decisions at policy level, but give us your thoughts. Well, my personal thought and my experience in engaging um, with our supply chain, but also really reflected of what the discussion was today, is there isn't a silver bullet. There will be a number of policy instruments, uh, financial instruments, uh, risk management instruments that will have to play a role. And for a very solid policy, you need to really assess what are the problems you want to solve and then what are the options and incentives you can drive. I think the, the key words that we heard today were uh, valuing uh, properly the impacts and externalities across the board that agriculture, the food system generally is, is generating, and then really working through the options of actually uh, driving more the positive than a negative. So yeah, carbon taxes along others can, can, uh, can play a role. My personal uh, uh, drive is really to, to ensure water security. So water and using soil in particular and soil health to not only um, uh, support carbon sequestration of what we heard, but also water retention is absolutely critical. So we all have our interests here and only good ones, I hope. Uh, John, the same question to you on carbon tax. John, I don't think we can hear you. I think you're on mute. Can we try again? Your thoughts on carbon can, tax. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. So I, I'm a great believer that there should be a price put on carbon. I am not a believer of a tax because what happens at tax is the polluters pay and it goes into a big black hole within some government, and it doesn't get redirected to actually change behaviour. I am much prefer, I'm a fan of lights of the European Emissions Trading Scheme, 
where then you know there you know people on one hand you pay if you want to be a polluter you pay for it on one hand if you want to go faster and reduce your emissions more you have something you sell you create a market that way and i believe that absolutely focuses both people needing to reduce their emissions but also people wanting to go beyond best practice and actually driving their agenda faster because we need to energize people in this debate a tax is a blunt instrument an emissions trading scheme would be a far sharper instrument that at least allows people to engage positively and for the people who want to go beyond and actually drive this agenda quicker there will be a reward for them pay for positive behavioral change beat up people who won't go on the agenda Thank you. We have another question in, Mary, and another one for you from Nelly Lowers from the Belgian Farmers Union. And it's a long one. Uh, food processors are more aware of sustainable farming and communicating this to consumers, which is good for bigger margins. But at the farmer's level, we often see this is a rather one-way communication. How do you create a balanced relationship between a farmer or a group of farmers and a big food company with a lot of different entities or centers of knowledge? Can we hear you? Yeah, this exactly is a long question, but um, collaboration in the supply chain between farmers, food processors, retail, uh, is very important and uh, probably it starts by um, by realizing and affirming that you need each other so the the food processors need farmers farmers need food processors I mean um, in 2018 uh, this was a very difficult year we had uh, a very extreme droughts and and hot summer, hot dry summer in uh, Northwest Europe, I think in the complete Northwest Europe. And at that moment, um, there was the risk of shortages of, uh, of food because farmers had a lot of difficulties. And in that year, we saw that the relations between farmers, food processors and retail uh, were like, um, yeah, reconsidered. And um, I think that um, uh, uh, stronger connections, we call, we can call it also dedicated food, food supply chains, uh, are also relevant for sustainability. Thank you. I want Ulrike also to respond to that, just because you, how do you engender this good two-way communication? Yeah, that's a very good and a very complex issue. Um, I had a number of situations where we worked and, and, and talked to our suppliers and that took us to farmers and then they said, look, look at all the wonderful things we do and look at all the PowerPoint presentation and the sustainability reports we can give you that tell you what we do. And, and it is the truth that this is all really great stuff, but it cannot be, it's not a, it's not a currency that you can trade easily along a value chain, in particular if you have several partners and players. And so I come back to, whilst it is, it is really a nuisance for many farmers, but assurance schemes and certifications at farm level are an effective way of building the transparency uh, across a benchmark and a level playing field of sustainable agriculture uh, practices and is a currency that farmers and then supply chain actors can communicate along the value chain. And in particular, if we are 
galvanizing around a few assurance schemes that are credible and stakeholder supported and do actually make an impact on sustainable farming practices, I think we have something like a gold nugget that we can communicate up and down the supply chain. So I mentioned earlier, Bon Sucro is a, is a certification uh, system for sugarcane farming in particular, so any refined sugar that comes from sugarcane would, would uh, benefit from that. Sai platform farm sustainability assessment is more for crops in general uh, and increasing for other, for other agricultural materials. That is something that the industry broadly can recognize and if farmers say we are assured against the farm sustainability assessment, then we all understand what is meant and what that actually signifies. So I think there is something in certifications and assurance schemes to help that, that transparent communication along the supply chain. Uh, John, also, do you want to weigh in on that uh, before I go to my final question? Yes, I mean, for, for me, and coming back to Eureka, what she's just said about certification schemes, for me as a primary producer, certification schemes are the bare minimum license for me to, you know, to farm. But it doesn't differentiate my product from my neighbor's or my competitor's product. So for us, we want to invest in sustainability in a transparent manner so that we can communicate what we're doing over and above anybody else is doing. Because... What, you know, the scale of change that we need, it's not good to be in the herd going at the herd. We need entrepreneurs and innovators and pioneers and early adopters to get on and go beyond that and keep driving positive change. So, so, so for me, um, we are very keen in working with farmers, with our customers, with other farmers about how they can go that step further, but do it transparently so they can then share their positive journey with their supplier, with the retailer. And the feedback we've had is the level of transparency we're bringing. Retailers want to engage because it's the next stage beyond the, the standard verification that we all have to do. It's the next stage beyond. And I, you know, more and more consumers are wanting to know where their product comes from. They want it to be authentic. Uh, they want trust in that, but they want to know that what journey you're on, what direction you're on that, on that journey and the speed that you're going. And that's why for us, we believe that we need to go to the next stage is personalized agenda, measure and manage, show transparency in your journey. The retailer will come with you. Thank you, John. So my final question uh, for the session and for today is to Tassos. The title of this session is Rewarding Agriculture's Potential Solutions for Biodiversity and Climate Change. In the first panel, we asked a lot of questions about who pays. And I'm wondering, do you think there are enough instruments at your disposal currently to really reward? We hear a lot about the stick, but not so much the carrot in uh, driving sustainability. Uh, yes, I think there are enough instruments and that's why we haven't had many alternative instruments. What we are really missing is uh, the best way of targeting this and convincing people that they are there. Uh, an earlier question was uh, about uh, whether uh, this is feasible or not. Uh, they, I mean, if you look at uh, the example of John and Marion, if you look at the three examples we brought in our agricultural conferences, what do they indicate? They indicate that there are practices out there that you improve your, improve, farmers improve their income, their competitiveness, their soil, they reduce emissions, improve biodiversity. Uh, most of them are linked with the generational renewal. They are linked to growth in rural areas, so seven of the nine objectives we want. They're driven by innovation. 
And then they are, what are the other two objectives we have set? Uh, you know, shrink the distance that exists between producers and consumers in the food chain and respond to consumers and society's broader concerns. All of these things are possible. And it's not the measures that we're missing. What we're missing is belief that these measures work on the ground. And what we're missing, missing is a very targeted communication that will convince people that this is not about problems, the problems we have, and they're for everybody. It's also about opportunities and a growth strategy. And obviously, I mean, all the institutions and all the stakeholders involved need to do their best because we have nothing to gain by overpolarizing a debate. And we have everything to gain if we actually try to convince, first of all, ourselves and then the wider public that in the current situation we're facing, we can merge, marry, jointly deliver economic and environmental efficiency without adding a social cost. Thank you very much, uh, Tassos Haniotas from DG Agri, and also to our other panelists, John Gilliland, Marianne Kroll, and Ulrich Sapiro. On behalf of the FFA, we would like to thank all our speakers, as well as our moderator, Jennifer Baker, for making the day a success. We would also like to thank the FFA founding partners, European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the strategic partners, the Nature Conservancy, Cargill, World Wildlife Fund Europe, Rabobank and Thought for Food, as well as our international partner, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs.